0: That's a good question. Are we technically in Austin if you only get two all rights? All right, all right. Anybody do the math and think, wait, one's missing. Yeah, one's missing. We're doing a bunch of new things today. One of those is going to be a quick introduction. I have a single sentence introduction just to prove Trey that I can do it when I need to. Here's the intro. Good morning. It's good to see you again. We're dropping back into the mini series from James this morning, and so we're on our way. How do you like that? Does that work? That's quick. Thank you, two people. I'm going back to 17-page introductions. I'm just going to do it. My name is Jason. If we haven't met, some of you I have not met, um, we will connect at some point. Wait till all the, see here, I'm doing an intro. Wait till, wait till all the normal ANC folk come back. I don't know where they hide, but I can tell that 99% of them aren't in the building, and they've given you all a chance to slide in and experiment, and then they'll all show up and you'll be like, they ruined my church. Every crazy in Hayes County or or Travis County just showed up to ANC, but it's really good to see you again. We will bring back all of the accoutrements of proper ministry with kids and youth and all the things when we're able to do that, Um, and I think a lot of families are probably waiting that out, but we will do that when it's safe to do that. If you are new here, we don't listen to political bylines. Uh, We listen to the status of our healthcare in our city, and it's still serious, and so we still take it very serious. So it's good to have you. We will be dropping back. It is the second to last Sunday in September. We'll finish our series in James in September, and we've got a series of very exciting people coming to speak to us. Among them, Stan Mitchell, the great Stan Mitchell from Nashville. Some of you know him and love him. I keep trying to get him married while he's down here. We got to line up the candidates and uh, do a... No, we shouldn't do that. That would be a really bad idea. Also, we're going to hear from Brett Trapp, who's coming to us fresh from the Camino de Santiago in Europe. He's... He's done the old pilgrimage route, and he's a great friend of our of this little house. He was with us when we got serious about social justice as it relates to the gay community, and um, so Brett will be bringing the word at some point in October. It's going to be a great month. So here we are, second to last uh, little foray into the book of James. Uh, and believing in the wisdom of the lectionary, some of you aren't even sure what that is. You'll, you'll discover it over time. We find ourselves here more out of trust... Then out of any particular interest or expertise that I have with the book of James, I don't remember taking a class in seminary in the book of James. I'm not sure they even offered one. You see, James can be an intimidating letter to decode, an intimidating book to figure out. And boy, am I glad, though, that the wind brought us here because I'm learning a whole bunch of stuff that I didn't know existed. I hope you are, too. That would be the hope. See, I didn't have well-formulated thoughts or theories or big insights into James before. I didn't. But it's coming into view now as I've sat with it for this month, very slowly. And every Monday morning when I get up and begin my week, I sit with these ideas, these passages. I open my heart to sit with them as we do with the Word. And then I see where the week and where the wind takes us. And so let's look today at our text. It comes from James chapter 3. It's a lengthy reading. So hang in there. Bear with us. It'll be on the screen. We're now up to date with the proper lectionary for a, a week or two we were behind Subtitle here from reading from the New Revised Standard Version, which in case it matters to you, I read because it's gender neutral where appropriate, um, and that matters to me. So, Taming the Tongue, James writes these words. Verse 1, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know that that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. (laughs) I love this. Paul says, imitate me. Everybody do exactly what I'm doing. James says, don't do this for a living. (laughs) I think that's funny. Verse 2. For all of us make many mistakes. Anyone who makes no mistakes in speaking is perfect, able to keep the whole body in check with a bridle. If we put bits into the mouths of horses and make them obey obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Or look at ships, writes James. Though they are so large that it takes strong winds to drive them, yet they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue Is a small member, yet it boasts of great exploits. (laughs) How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire. And then just to make it clear in verse 6, he says, And the tongue is a fire. The tongue is placed among our members as a world of iniquity, and this verse makes no sense to me whatsoever. It's just all weird and jumbled. It stains the whole body, James writes, sets on fire the cycle of nature or the wheel of birth. Think of the old journey song, which is really just a 70s stadium rock version of the Shakespeare concept, which actually goes back to ancient philosophers, the wheel of life, you know what I mean, the cycle of birth, and is itself set on fire by hell. Now it gets interesting. Hell here means the valley of Hinnom. And the English word hell that we have can be one of several ideas from the original language. Caesar has taught on this recently in Spanish on his, in, to his congregation. Well, here James references Gehenna, which is a Greek rendering of the word Valley of Hinnom, which was a geographical place that residents of the city of Jerusalem would have understood. In fact, just to get super creepy, it was the valley just outside of city where the the, the, the kings of Judah would go to sacrifice the children born to them illegitimately. Born of concubines, born of other people's stolen wives. If you had a child born to you and you were the king of Judah, you would take them to to Gehenna to, to sacrifice them. To, to relieve yourself of the guilt. So just to be super clear, we're not talking about eternal conscious bodily torture like, like John Piper interprets Dante's Inferno from way back when. That's a completely separate idea. James writes, hell as in this valley outside of Jerusalem. I just thought you should know that. Verse 7, he goes on. For every species of beast or bird or reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by the human species. And zoologists in the room say that's not true. Zebras, for example, or great white sharks, or even tigers, or American bison, just to name a few. All are untamable, as best we know, but his general point stands. It really is impressive to steer something as large as a horse, not to mention a ship like the one behind me, with something as small as a bit, or something as small as the rudder that you may see down here in the projection behind me. It really is something... Uh, something amazing. Then he goes on, but no one can tame the tongue. And now we're getting back to the rhythm here. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord and Father and with it we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. Guilty as charged human race. Don't even argue this. Save money on an attorney. We are guilty with this. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this ought not be so, writes James. Does a spring pour forth From the same opening, both fresh and brackish water. And you have to be from Florida to know what brackish water is. It's salt water. Maybe from Louisiana. Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, yield olives or a grapevine figs? No more can salt water yield fresh. Who is wise and understanding among you? Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness born of wisdom, writes James. I thought about it this week. I can't ever recall reading this passage without feeling guilty. You know that feeling. Is any one of us above reproach when it comes to the way we speak? James willingly admits that no one can tame the tongue, so don't feel small or particularly unskilled. Apparently zero people have full control of their tongue. Honestly, sometimes James's black and white comparisons are a lot to metabolize, aren't they? And it's not just the case with James. It's the case with the whole Bible in general, isn't it? It takes very little for me to feel defeated and condemned when these writers put pen to parchment. I wonder if the same is true for you, which probably says more about us and the way we see ourselves than it does about anything in particular that they may have been writing to address. So... Did I mention to you at any point in the last couple weeks that the book of James is the only book in the New Testament that belongs to the category known to biblical scholars as wisdom literature? Did I mention that? Yeah, forgive me. I think I forgot to say that, didn't I? It seems like that would have been a really good idea to say in the beginning. So we're gonna do a little backwork as we set ourselves up for this passage that evokes such guilt in us. You see, James is a letter, that's true, but it's also something else. In addition to being a letter, which it writes to address particular things, it was part of wisdom tra- the, the Jewish wisdom tradition, which is something that we know because it identifies itself as such in chapter 1. He writes by saying, if you have any lack of wisdom, ask God. And he ends by saying, the good life is a wise life. And that is to say, the piece, this piece of ancient literature has practical ideas about community, fully in view as a New Testament letter Always did it was thinking about particularities, but it's also concerned very deeply with wisdom with wise living with Which is another way of saying with communal thriving or just the fully integrated life This of course means that James belongs alongside other classics like Job and Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes And that sexually explicit love song that Solomon writes to his Shulamite lover of Ebony skin These are all ancient collections of wisdom, lists of good ideas and hard learned lessons. These are sayings and similes and comparisons as well as poetry, but also often hyperbole, emotion, anger, exaggeration, and stark, stark comparisons. Barbara Brown Taylor reminded me this week of something that I had forgotten. Another characteristic of wisdom literature is that it, it persistently relies on examples from the natural order to make spiritual points to unwind spiritual complexities wisdom literature will point to things that are common that we all understand things in the natural world i suppose james just could have said zip it friends stop running your trap put some teeth in your pie hole before you burn it all down he could have just said that he could have just said that that's probably what the salty apostle paul might have said But instead, James offers us bits and bridles on horses and rudders on ships and forest fires and figs and olives and sweet and salty water. James writes this way to illustrate the power of speech, or to use his word, the tongue. Some of you have noticed the image projected behind me. I don't know if you can make it all out, even if you're out of town But a ship is driven by a very, very small, in comparison, piece of wood or steel. And instead of telling us to shut up, James says, you see how we're able to steer mighty vessels with tiny pieces of wood? So should it be with the tongue. Instead of doctrinal formulations built on rhetoric and theology and perhaps even wisdom and history, wisdom literature appeals to things our senses can experience and explore, which I happen to find super helpful. Remember, James is going to ask us to get out of our heads and into our bodies or to, quote, my favorite band, The Midnight, out of our heads and into our feet. The most important thing to keep in mind when reading wisdom literature is its overarching goal. And what is it? Here's what it is. To describe to the reader a better way of living. That's it. That's what makes wisdom literature unique. It tells stories and it paints pictures to quicken the imagination into better living, into a wiser life. Now remember, James addresses his thoughts to all members of the 12 tribes scattered, which is a little bit like saying, this is for everyone. Or like we say down here, this is for all y'all, right? And that's a big audience. That's a pretty wide market, appropriate for, for wisdom writing. You know markets matter. The size of them specifically matters. For example, if you were to market and sell sweatshirts that say Austin, your market would be about a million people. But if you added the word not Austin, it would be something like a million less than 7.8 billion. Sounds like a bigger market to me. Now, I'm not a math guy, but that makes sense to me. If you're going to write things like this, say this is for everyone, that's what James does. That's a stupid Dimitri Martin joke. I don't know why I left that in. I should have taken that out. Dimitri Martin, he's our favorite. Uh, He's a comic. Don't look him up. I can't recommend him. I did not say his name. Anyway, James is both letter and wisdom literature. What am I getting at? I'm trying to help us understand chapter 3. Keeping this in mind will help us make sense of these ideas. You see, uh, Jewish wisdom tradition is full of black and white dichotomies. And this is where I suffer, if you must know. It's the, you can't be this and that, or it's the this or that statements, as in it's either sweet or it's salty, it's a fig or it's an olive, it's a blessing or it's a curse, you know, it's good or it's bad or it's faith or it's action. It can't be both. Even though James himself acknowledges that we actually are both, he claims that we cannot be. So what's the point? Remember, James is not condemning the reader. He's extending an invitation to a wiser way of living. In fact, this whole book or this letter Fits into that framework for me. James, the shepherd of the flock at Jerusalem, writes to remind his reader of the importance and the centrality of wisdom. And how does he do it? By rattling off a laundry list of, uh, of things and equating them to living less than wise, living less than wisely. For example, and you would remember this from a few weeks ago, in the first chapter, James simply says, it would be unwise to fight against the process by which we grow up. You remember the trials and tests, accept them as joy, right? It would be unwise to fight the sequence that leads to maturity. In other words, resisting the trials and the tests, failing to see how they move us to greater depth and capacity just isn't the wisest way to live. Don't fight it. Don't wear yourself out. That's chapter one. Similarly, in chapter two, James addresses how unwise it would be to show partiality towards anyone, no matter how rich or how poor they appear, again, this is not about condemnation. We're all guilty here to some degree. Drop that angle. It's not that helpful. Instead, think about this. Think about how unwise it would be to accept the role of judge in the faith community. To accept the role of the person who has to determine the value of the other person. Think of how unwise that would be. You see, James' warnings about judgment are very simple. Don't take on the role of judge, lest you be judged the same way. Far better, far wiser, far smarter Would it be if no one accepted that role? You see, the Holy Spirit is pretty good at what he does, brings awareness of how we need to be more like God, and it would be unwise for any of us to sit in judgment when we don't need it. It isn't necessary, writes James. Be the observer, not the judge. That's so much wiser. Besides, are you sure you know who matters most? What if you were wrong? What if you failed to see the angels in your midst because you were confused by the finery and the flash, and you thought it meant the favor of God? This could be an embarrassing mistake. This could be really unwise. Who are any of us to decide who matters most? Don't forget, says James, God will choose the poor, and they will become the heirs of the kingdom in the, in, in, in the, world, in the language that James uses. You don't know the difference, and so don't set yourself up to pick Simple folks dressed like commoners as well as swanky types all swooshing and swaying with symbols of success might surprise you in the end. It wouldn't be wise, writes James. No condemnation, an invitation to a wiser way of being. Then later in chapter 2, James will go on to say, Faith without works is dead internal devotion and worship that has not yet found its way into the material reality is not yet alive writes james it might be the hot wheels version of hamilton's mercedes mark but it wouldn't throw you into a chicane at 200 miles an hour it's just a toy it's not yet alive if it isn't active faith without corresponding action isn't yet real not yet but you hear the invitation. No condemnation, no shame. James, just know that religion that fails to alleviate the suffering of real people beginning with you is far less than it could be. It's so much less than it should be. It's less than it actually is. You hear the difference when we read this as wisdom literature? This is not a list of ways to shame yourself. This is an invitation to live wise. To assume otherwise that religion is all there is would just be unwise. More importantly, it would be adolescent. It would be immature. It would even be silly, if you listen to James, to settle for less than the whole package of God's goodness. Y'all, we have to stop hearing condemnation and shame every time we pick up this book. If that's all you hear, then put it down. Don't pick it back up. Put it down. This book was not written, it was not compiled and protected and preserved to condemn you. If it was used that way to make you feel small and ashamed or broken and condemned, that was a mistake. It was never intended to be used like that. This has always been a story about God's indescribable goodness, about God's nearness to us all, about God's deep and ancient infusion of material, all material, no exceptions. This was never intended to be weaponized for you against your, against your well-being, for your harm. These stories are preserved to inspire you to live wiser. That's the bottom line. Study the Bible all you want, but don't lose track of this filter, friends. If you go down in the text and you come up with condemnation and hate for anyone, it doesn't matter why, go back down. You haven't yet metabolized the gospel hidden in it, you haven't found the treasure buried in the field, you haven't found the wisdom yet. Don't come up with anything less than love, y'all. Don't be ashamed, just keep trying. When it feels like love for you, for all, you found the treasure worth keeping. James writes, writes to remind his readers that anything less than the whole package would be tragic. It would be unwise to settle for. That's the point of faith without action is dead. It's not to blame the church across the street who doesn't know how to serve the poor. That's still hatred, y'all. You get my point. He writes to remind us that there's a whole thing here that we ought not settle for less. Now think again about that statement. Faith without works is dead. Don't hear what isn't being said, you guys. Instead, hear the invitation to a full, unfiltered, wild, and astonishingly good life. It's as if James is saying, I'm writing to you to remind you to be alive fully. The point is this. It would be unwise to assume that religion is all there is. When there's so much more, it isn't smart to settle for anything short of of the full thing, the full vibrancy of life, the full thriving package. I wonder if you can hear that gospel this morning. Wisdom literature isn't to be weaponized against people who aren't doing it the way that we are. It's written to remind us about our better way of being in the world, a wiser way of existing. So, again, to get back to our passage today, what must have been on the mind of James, the good vicar of the church at Jerusalem? Very simple speech, the power of language, to bless and to curse tongue and all the power hidden in it small things that make an enormous impact in how we live in the world and what does James suggest we do should we rip it out is he suggesting an amputation I mean it sounds reasonable enough if it's as full of deadly poison as he seems to suggest but no that will never be the solution will it Maybe infants do better when they're removed, when things that are dangerous are removed from their reach. But adults, no, no, no. We get to learn how to tame what's unruly and unwise, to harness it, to use it for good. You see, the words we use build up almost as fast as they destroy. The tongue is like fire, says James, and he isn't wrong, y'all. I know he's right, and you know he's right. So I've been doing some thinking. What do I build and what do I burn down with my words? James mentions specifically bragging, and oh boy, I wish he hadn't. <laughs> you know, anytime we stretch the truth, overstate the case, exaggerate the impact, or more specifically, act like we know something that we actually do not, that's a fire that destroys. It's childish to brag. It isn't wise. I also think about defensiveness, of course I do. You know, like when your person tells you how they feel, but instead of responding with empathy, we defend our motives, which may be as pure as the white-driven snow, but also are not the point at the moment. I know this only happens to me. No one else in the room is about to nervously laugh. (laughs) It's immature to defend when not being attacked. It isn't wise. Or finally, I think about our apologies that sometimes aren't. You know, they sound like this. I'm sorry you got your feelings hurt, or I'm sorry you misunderstood me. (laughs) Speech that destroys and blames and pushes real intimacy away. It's grown up to apologize, to own stuff. It's childish, and it's unwise not to. What is the good vicar trying to say? Some of you are terrified by that word. It just means pastor, y'all. What is the good vicar trying to say? Barbara Brown Taylor describes what she thinks James might be getting at here. This section begins, I remind you, with James saying uh, it would be super wise if you didn't aspire to be a leader like me, which is very odd because James was the person he's telling them not to be like. And thinking about leaders and leadership perhaps and, and, and what she describes as tongue toxin in her own translation, Taylor writes these words. Barbara Brown Taylor, she says this, whether we mean to or not, we construct worlds with speech. Describing the world we see, we confuse it for the whole world. <laughs> Making meaning of what we see, we conflate this with God's meaning. We say God said, don't we? Then we behave according to the world that we have constructed with our speech, even when this, that causes us to dismiss or harm those who construe the world differently. I think she's right. I know she's right. We, perhaps in particular, those of us who attempt to lead, stretch and conflate and brag and blame and deflect often. We overstate things almost as much as we understate other things. And either way, we lose control of the vessel when truth gets blurred. Guilty as charged. We all are. But guilt is never as interesting as an invitation to grow in wisdom. This, friends, is the main message of the book of James. There's a wiser way to live. It's just smarter to use speech to bless and to build up, to praise and to notice, to acknowledge and to show empathy. It's just smarter. Ships adrift without rudders are like wild horses without bits and bridles. They're dangerous, they're destructive, unpredictable, and unwieldy. This final thought, I wonder, I wonder, if we committed to speak nothing but truth, how far would we get? A moment, a day, a week, perhaps not even. A wiser use of the tongue will almost certainly mean using it less for those of us who use it too much, but for those of you who don't, it's probably going to mean finding your voice and speaking your truth. Who told us that it's our job to have an opinion about everything? Who told you you couldn't speak up about anything? Do we really want to sit among those who cast judgment? I say it would be an unwise way to be. You see, it's immature to let words fall out of our mouth with zero restraint, with no awareness of how they burn and blister and break others. It's wise to speak only words that build up. What might our relationships look like if we accepted this wise challenge? What might our faith community look like if we did the same? You know, I know we associate wisdom with age, which makes some sense as I'm getting older. Sort of. Sort of. Until you meet someone who's old and also super nasty and immature. Or till you meet someone who's young and wise beyond their years. It's not just about chronology, y'all. It's about discipline. It's about discipline. Wisdom is something we can focus on and move towards like a ship steers through a storm to a safe harbor. Anyway, if we set our sights on wisdom, I suspect there'd be fewer answers, more empathy. Fewer silver linings, you know, I don't pay you to find the silver linings in my pain, right? How many of us do this? There would be fewer silver linings and more loving silence, more space for real people like us. Sounds wise to me. The tongue is not an easy beast to tame, y'all. But it seems worth trying, wouldn't you say? Pray with me as we might ask God for courage to believe that it's worth a try. Lord, we would beg of you this morning an extra measure of grace as we reflect on the things that flow from our heart through our mouth. Call us to a greater place of responsibility and awareness in your name we pray, Lord God.